The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the beast herself, Tammy, the Sasquatch Underwood. Say grr, Tam. Hi, everybody. <sighs> never a good grr. Jesus fucking Christ. I never give you what you want. Damn. All right, so we have a little bit of a commercial before we even start to what we're doing for this whole entire week. We have the Keith Jesperson calls, of course, and that's going to take up a lot of time, but... We also have our own special line of T-shirts. That we're launching this week. That we are launching this week. And they'll be available on uh, on eBay, Etsy, Shopify. I don't know, UFOs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll the have the is. links in the description box. Oh, yeah. We're going to have links in the description box. That's, yeah. what, that's what we're doing. <laughs> Most of them are on Etsy, though, for now. Right, right. So, uh, Check them out because our special line has things like, well, for example, like Keith Jesperson when he got into a little bit of uh, trouble for the uh, self-start serial killer handbook. We have that. Yep. We got it on a shirt. <laughs> got it on a shirt. If you could think of it, we got it on a shirt. So check that out. Because we're not out. right. <laughs> no, it, that, it was weird when you and I were talking about that because as, as I'm coming up with like the Jeffrey Dahmer one and everything like that, oh my God. We're not right in the head. We are, we are, we are not right in the head at We all. either need a lot of counseling, drugs, yeah. or, or something. Pretty much, yeah. We're pretty, pretty much. messed up. Yeah. All right, so we're going to get into the Jesperson calls, and we will talk to you guys, or talk to you. We're already talking to you. Jesus Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, I don't know if he's talking or what he's doing. We don't know what you're doing. It's already been a long fucking day. <laughs> Let's get into Keith Jesperson calls. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, good Hello. morning, Keith. Good morning. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. At least I can talk now. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah. So it's just you and I again today. Scott had to go to work. So. Oh. Okay. I know, huh? I told him he was yeah. in trouble, but whatever. He doesn't pay attention to me. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, it was mentioned the last time there about the uh, BB gun fights. Oh yeah, our yeah. Kids had in our neighborhood. Isn't that the precursor to the paintball uh, fights they have now on TV? I, I think so. I think so. But you know, even because I mean, not so much the BB guns, but my son and I had a set of airsoft pistols, and we used to get those things hurt. <laughs> yes, they do. They sting a little well, bit. Well, I, I remember when I was younger, and I was throwing a, a water balloon. At, you know, you were throwing water balloons at people, right? And they 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 would pop. Now, several times I throw one, and actually they wouldn't pop. They'd actually just hit like a baseball. I know they, they, they would just, and they hurt. And of course, I remember this one kid there threw one at him. It actually knocked the wind out of him, and he was like, "I thought, oh, oh, you know." Yeah, right. But it was, it's a water balloon, right? It, so yeah, you would think so. <laughs> it would be like you oh, would no. think that you know it, it's like that. Uh, that that football player that, that got hit in the chest here just recently and oh yeah I uh, heard about his heart that. was his heart was stopped well that's that can happen with a with a water balloon wow with anything with anything a baseball or anything like that so you got to really watch out for it I guess yeah I had but, heard about that football player I used to follow football closely and not so much anymore but I don't I don't like the game myself oh um, see I, I only I'm, because of High school. Uh, oh yeah. I went through that with high school. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I was I was diehard Dallas Cowboys fan because growing up in Iowa, I had one cousin who loved the Washington Redskins and another one who loved the Chicago Bears. So I had to find a team that they both hated equally, and oh, okay. it was the Cowboys. So, <laughs> oh, but oh. Um, that's back when the Cowboys were good players. I mean, had a good team too, but whatever. We well, you know the, the Jim McMahon, Jim McMahon of the uh, the, the Bears, right? The quarterback, okay. His sister was at uh, the Oasis Casino in Mesquite, Nevada, and I met her there. Oh, really? And we were we were talking, and uh, she said who she was, and I said, who are you? I mean, I mean, that don't ring a bell. And she said, what do you mean it doesn't ring a bell? Big as I am and everything like that. I says, oh, I don't follow football. And she said, well, let's have a good time tonight because I don't like people that follow football either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was actually blind. Did you know that? Legally blind. I had no idea. Yeah. No, I had no idea. Yeah, he had to wear uh, sunglasses and stuff on the field because he, he was technically considered legally blind. Yeah. Wow, that means like John Sosnowski. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so. Yeah. But, um, they, um. What was like? Oh, Scott and I were talking um, too this last week, and um, he was saying how that you guys had talked about that this year, the 33rd anniversary of Tanya Bennett's death. That's marks, correct. And it's, it's it's the same days right, in the month. Everything lines up perfectly. Yes, and I mentioned to him what he should do is on the 21st, which is a Saturday, uh, go up to the Vista House Monument, like at night uh-huh. at 10 o'clock just to just to take photos of how crowded it is in the area okay. you know because this the, the, the you know Laverne Tavernock's last story that convicted her claiming that she was up there with John and Tanya and uh, John and Tanya were in the doorstep of the Vista house having you know having sex and uh, she was in the car, and then he got up and he went into the car, got a length of rope, and got her to come out with her, and and uh, was right there, and nobody saw it happen. Of course. Wow. It was there was and the question would come up: Was there even a crime scene investigator uh, team go up there to prove it was a crime scene? Uh, and I I rather doubt it. I think they they already knew it was it was a made up story, and they weren't going to send people up there to look for. Right. Something that isn't there, right? And like we were talking the other day about, uh, you know, the uh, one of the when the police finally went to the B and I Tavern, they finally found out that's where she was at last. The barmaid had mentioned that it had been raining that day, and that Tanya was soaking wet. You know, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, and, and so that narrative of the of the rain, uh, Laverne's story had had to include rain in it. And she claimed it was raining cats and dogs kind of thing. And that's when he picked up John and, and her went over at the truck stop and drove so many miles and got rid of But claimed it was raining out. And it wasn't. Oh, okay. Uh, the, you know, that day, uh, uh, that whole weekend, it wasn't raining at all. Okay. And all you have to do is, all you have to do is go back to the Almanac right. or contact like Coin TV. And their weather department, and ask them the question. I said they 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 have records. What was the weather like on uh, January twenty first, nineteen ninety? Was it 
and, and it was foggy in the morning, and it was, the sun burned it off at about 10 o'clock. And uh, that's when, you know, I went off for my walk, and it was all, it was just a sunny day. It was cold. Right. But it was it was a sunny day, and, went, and that's when I went to the B&I Tavern. I met, I met her for the first time about 1 o'clock that afternoon. Okay. And so that was the, yeah. Now, we also talked about, you know, her, her mental capacity. Everyone kept saying that, you know, she was mentally, re- you know, we find out later that she was mildly retarded when the question comes up, what, what is exactly does that mean? Right. And I said, well, maybe that's why she went to the bar. I, because people don't go to the bar to get smart. That, this right? is true. <laughs> we do not go to the bar and drink alcohol to get smart. We get there to get a little goofy. Yeah. Get a little drunk, and we let our hair down, and we kind of like have a great time. We're kind of loaded. We come out of there, um, and, you know, how many beer head start would she have without having to take a drink? Right. So, in other words, does she have, you know, is she walking in there? Uh, some people would call her a cheap day because right. she wouldn't have to spend so much money on her to get her drunk. Right. No, I, I but, mean... You know, and it was it was a shock. It was a shock when I was when when I read that she was mildly retarded and how they they were playing into it about how I I should know, right? Right. It's like like going to school a special education class. I've known I've known students in special education class were that could play chess like like no other business, right? They knew what they were doing. Oh yeah, totally. But totally. They, but they they did their mindset their mindset was off a little bit and that's all it was but that's that's how special education was back then or still is today right. you don't know I mean I didn't I couldn't pick it out I mean uh, yeah she was probably she was she was crazy for coming up and, and wrapping her arms around a total stranger but nothing you know, we don't know what goes on in her mind right in well, anyone's see- mind. Well, and that's true. I mean, because, I mean, I used to hang out at the long time ago, back in my clubbing days. Um, I used to actually go to a gay bar in downtown Portland because with enough tequila in me, I have rhythm. Um, <laughs> but, oh, wow. Yeah, so it's like, right. <laughs> but only if I have enough tequila in me. Otherwise, I'm a white girl with yeah. no rhythm. <laughs> you know the old song, tequila makes your clothes fall off. You know what? It kind of does. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but it's like as soon as I get there, I would order one shot of tequila, and then uh, the DJ's boyfriend would come buy me more because he liked it when I got on the dance floor. So I never had to buy another drink the rest of the night. You know what I mean? No. So yeah, I understand that. Yeah, so I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So I didn't know. I have no idea. Right. And that's uh, one of the things I wanted to, you know, with with Scott, I discussed with us the Bennett case. I think. Uh, to to get into it, to really actually get into it, we have to take it a step by step into right. the L.A. Times story by by the question of guilt by Barry Siegel. Now you have to understand that the L.A. Times story is a, is a story produced by uh, the prosecutor, Jim McIntyre. Right. He's trying to explain uh, away any any fault that he may have in their in their conviction. Right. He's trying to he's trying to tell the story that this is how it all played out and and how are we you know, and he throws questions around like how did we supposed to know, right? But I think we need to really when we dive into this we have to go from the start and just work through it. 
Right. Now, yeah. I, had, I had also I had read some reports too um, that stated that you knew that she was developmentally or mentally disabled, and that was and the fact that you overpowered her and killed her was a turn on for you because you you know what I mean, and it was just oh. yeah, and it was like to me the report made no sense. Because how would I like, know? How would I know? I didn't even know the girl. Yeah, I mean, unless she came out and this said, the first I you just know. ran into now. Uh, it, it, there's another. There's another um, story. You know that uh, Laverne knew her. That that Laverne was mentally, you know, incapacitated at some point, which uh, <laughs> would go along with the idea that she was nuts along with John, right, and that they they actually were at the Damascus Hospital at some point, and they actually met there at the Damascus Hospital at some point along the way, so they knew each other. That was hmm. the that was the thought process that went into well, how did they how did they all come together? How was these you know they were able to connect to each other? Was the fact that maybe they met somewhere else before before that night? Okay. And so I don't know. I mean, this is this is their. Uh, the police are trying to, you know, or the prosecutors are trying to come up with solutions on how this all came about to explain away how they they took on a, a seemingly nutcase right. and fed her information to, to help her convict a boyfriend that she's been trying to convict for three years. Right. Yeah. So the narrative is, is that they're, they're trying to explain you know, how they got it wrong, and they just got it wrong. They, I think they, I think what happened was they, uh, uh, they knew that she was a, com, you know, a compulsive liar, and they wanted to see how far she'd take it. It became right. a game to them, because then they didn't have a suspect, so they decided to run with it. Let's see how far this will go, and then they kept feeding her information, and uh, she kept feeding it back. And that's all. That's all they needed. They convicted her on a on a uh, tape recording that they made, and she voluntarily gave up trying to get her boyfriend or the one person that you know, John Sasaki, thrown in prison. Right. To get you know to dissolve their friendship. I mean, wow. You think that she could just tell him, "Hey, get the hell out of my life," and and change the locks on the doors and and tell him never to come home. Kind of thing. Right, right. But that's not that wasn't in her. For three years, every time a a, a crime came up in the newspapers that was unsolved, and they were looking for leads, she'd call up the hotline and say, "John did it." Wow. And so, yeah, there was a bank robbery in Tiger, Oregon, where where she called the FBI, and and that was in 1987, and he called the FBI and said, "John did it." Well, John doesn't drive a car. Right. John's legally blind. I mean, this is, this is, you know, straight out of, you know, when when she calls in the hotline there and, and is is hooked up with uh, Detective John Ingram of Multnomah County Sheriff's Department. You know, she calls in anonymously. She just she isn't calling in saying I'm Laverne Pavanagh. She says I'm I'm anonymous. I'm not going to call. She, and and she says a story that kind of matches the. Uh, the newspaper clipping where they're looking for information. You know, they were looking for two men that the last scene was her at the B&I Tavern. So what does Laverne say? She says, I, uh, you know, I overheard John talking to a man I don't know about going up into the gorge and killing this woman. 
and and uh, and so. That's how the story starts. Well, it, it just it's similar to the story that's in the newspaper. Right. There's nothing new into it. And then, of course, when he, when John Ingram uh, looks up his name on the computer, finds out he's on county probation, what he ends up doing, he contacts county probation. Either he, he calls him up on the phone or he goes out to county probation, talks to the guy, and says, okay, what's going on here? I said, I've got a, a, an anonymous caller calling in saying that John Sosnowski killed this woman in the Columbia River Gorge. Could there any be any truth to this? And the county probation says, well, no, John is legally blind. He can't drive a car, so he, somebody else would have to have taken him up there with this person. Right. And we have a history, have a three-year three history with this woman that he lived with is trying to get rid of the guy, and every time there's a squabble, uh, some kind of a fight in the in, in the home, she contacts county probation or some police department and says John's guilty of some crime, trying to violate him to send him back to prison. And so, who is this person that calls? Well, the county probation. Well, you got to go see Laverne Pavlinock because she's the one that always seems to want to call and, and right. implicate John in a crime. So you can imagine that, you know, detectives went there and he's got all this, either he's got all the information firsthand over the phone or up the packet. Let's say there's a packet of, of information, paperwork, that is sent, a, a copy of it sent to Multnomah County right. for review. Now you would imagine that's probably what happened because... The, the prosecutor, Jim McIntyre, would have, if he's going to build a case on the guy, he's going to have to know everything, too. Right. And that's what that's how the system works. The, the police investigate the crime, the prosecutors prosecute, but they've got to have, they got to go work with the detectives to find out what evidence they're going to need to prosecute. Right. And so every, all this information has to be fed back, not just to the detective, but to the district attorney's office. Right, and they have to review this, and so they they know they know Laverne is a compulsive liar. They go out to the detectives go on out to see her, and they know this, and they they finally get her to confess that she's the anonymous phone caller. Well, okay, well that's fine. Now we know you're the anonymous caller, but you also are the one that keeps calling everyone and and lying about John. So. How do we move forward with that? Do they give her a polygraph test? No. Right. They do not. They do not give her a polygraph test. Why? Well, I would say because they know she's lying anyway, and it'd be a, a wasted effort, wasted money. They don't want to prove she's a liar if they're going to use her. Okay. They, if they're going to use her to build a case, they do not want her to be a liar right off the start. They want her to be credible, and she's credible. Why? Because they say she is. Right. That's what the detectives and the prosecutors are going to do. They're going to say she's credible because, and in the story, she's, oh, she's a little old lady. She's just like right. someone's grandmother. They, they, they play into this. Yeah, with no history of build drug her use. Character or, yeah. up. They build her character up and she's credible. But she's not because what they failed to mention in the, in the story until later on was that she had a three-year history of crying wolf. Okay. See, this is, this is, this is how they're trying to cover this up, is that they're trying to say, well, this came on later, but 
they knew when they went out to see her that John was blind and he needed someone to drive him anywhere. So right. how did the story develop? Well, the story developed where John was given a ride by somebody at every story. Mm-hmm. He had to, that's how the narrative is. And John is, you know, when, even when John tells the story, when they confront him and he fails the polygraph test, and after all this investigation, see, John, John's bewildered. You, you can imagine, he's been through the system. Right. He knows how the system works. Well, he knows that when the cops lock onto you, they lock onto you. Well, when he's listening to what, you know, Laverne is saying, he says, she's a lion. But he believes, I think what he did, he believed the detectives believed Laverne. Laverne. Uh-huh. That they actually believed her. They, he, I don't think it was, he, he would keep comprehend that they, they knew she was lying, but they were just going to use her to get to him, just to get a conviction anyway. Right. That was, that was the whole concept of this, is that they were trying to get a conviction anyway, and John didn't realize it, that, they, that she knew, that, that they knew that she was a liar, and they were just going to use her. Right. And that was, that was his, his, his misgivings, let's just say. Because he all of a sudden he said, well, if she's going to lie and they're going to believe her, why don't I tell a lie and they're going to believe me? Right. So what does he say? He tells a story about being picked up by a Chuck Riley. And Chuck Riley, drove, you had a, there was a dead body in the back seat when he got picked up. He got a ride home with Chuck, and Chuck went on and did his thing. And so Chuck's responsible for the death of Tanya Bennett, not him. Now, as in Chuck of Riley, course, as in our former congressman? Well, how about Chuck Riley that might be a former Washington County Sheriff? Oh, that Chuck Riley. It could be. I'm not sure. Uh, but you you could you could find out with his public information. I'm right. sure you could find out that uh, that was the Chuck Riley that, that they confronted. Was this guy would turn into, would, would, would at some day become a sheriff. Wow. Say, now... This is the story that, that John told. Now, John knows of Chuck Riley. So, but this, but where they were was in Washington County. If they're, if John, you know, they were over in, at uh, exit 286 off I-5, which is Wilsonville, which is Washington County. And so, like I say, John gets a ride everywhere, and so that that's his story. Now, they check out Chuck, and of course, Chuck, is uh, his alibi is, is solid. He isn't there. He wasn't that. Right. But uh, you know, they you know they said well because John had failed a polygraph test, he must be guilty of something. Right. You know, the polygrapher, the polygrapher said in the story. Now they lay it. You know that you know the L.A. Times story lays it back on the polygrapher and says, well, the polygrapher says, well, unequivocally, John is responsible for or did the crime. Of, of murder with Tanya. That's what they're claiming in the story. See, so they're laying the guilt back on the... It must be the polygrapher's fault for getting it wrong. Right? They're yeah. laying... They're, this whole story is about laying blame on somebody other than themselves. Right. On why they got it wrong. Okay. And so so if you start the, you start the story off, you know... Um, I, I, I committed the murder on January 21st, 1991. I put the body in the, in the ravine in, uh, east of the Vista House Monument and 
10 hours later, the body was found by a bicycle rider. And then within eight days, they identified who she was. Uh, her mother came into the morgue and, and uh, identified her. Mm-hmm. And then within a few weeks of, uh, of looking for her, they found out that the last place she was was at the B&I Tavern and in a company of two men. And then they, they ran into a roadblock. They didn't know where to go from there, so they went to the newspaper, which under public information should be able to get that copy of that that newspaper clipping of them asking for information in the case. And I'll have a hotline number. And then Laverne calls the number at some point in February, and they they bring into uh, question, you know, John Sosnowski. And so they start chasing this down. And I only, I hear about it in the news, right? about how they're arrested. Now, I didn't know how they're arrested, why they're arrested. Only one confessed to it. Now, how could that be? But in the L.A. Times story, it goes into great detail on, on the stories told. Right. So the first story, first story is Laverne says that I overheard uh, John talk to someone she didn't know. Of course, the following story, now, they, they get a search warrant to search her house. They don't give her a polygraph test, so they get a search warrant to search her house. And in that search, they don't find anything except for a note written in pencil, T. Bennett, great piece, or something along those lines. But it eventually was found out that that was in Laverne's own handwriting. It wasn't in John's. It was in a box, and that's what the only evidence they had. Now, four days later, they go back to the, the house. And you can imagine the conversation that say Detective John Ingram had with Laverne uh, at, the, at the time when they couldn't find anything so we can't bring John in for questioning because we don't have probable cause. Right. All we have is what you're saying happened and that's not enough. We need probable cause. So in order to have probable cause we've got to have some evidence that points in the direction of guilt for some reason. So all of a sudden four days later they go back out to her house and they look in the trunk of her car and there's a whole bunch of newspaper clippings and there's a, a little black purse about the size of of, of uh, Tanya's and there's a patch cut out of a woman's jeans fly area that resembles somewhat close to what was cut out of Tanya's jeans. A, a fact that was never brought out in the in the original newspaper clipping. Right. And so you're going to have to know that search warrant under public information should be able to get a copy of that. Okay. And that'd be very, that'd be very interesting because Laverne, in later years, Laverne would come back and say, well, it was in the search warrant. It was in the search warrant about what they were looking for. And And that's that's how how come, and that's how she knew, Right. But if it's not in the search warrant, then how did she know? Right. That's where I'm going with this. So if you have a copy of the search warrant, and if it's not in there, then where did the information come from? Well, it it must have come from a detective telling her about this, because that's the only way it could have done. Yeah. You know, that's that's the only way that this evidence could have done. But anyway, they search a car. They find this stuff. Now they have probable cause. 
Okay. So they pick up John and they question him. They question him for 10 hours. They, they drill him. They literally drill him. He's on medication and stuff. He fails a polygraph test. They tell him, you, we know you did it. We know you did it. Right. Now tell us the story. So he tells them the story. He lies about it. He says, all right, I was picked up by Chuck Riley. So they check out Chuck Riley, and Chuck Riley's alibi is good. But then Laverne changes the story, right? Right. All of a sudden, Laverne tells the story that she gets a phone call from John. He's at the JB's lounge and at the, at the Burn Brothers truck stop. He says, you better hurry up and come quick with your car and bring something plastic that doesn't leak. Now, why would he want something plastic that doesn't leak? Well... When they searched the car, there was no trace of, of Tanya in the car. Right. There's no trace of Tanya anywhere. So they have to, in their story, they've got to come up with a solution why there's no trace of her in the car. So they have to have something plastic to wrap in so that there's no trace of her in the car. Right. Now, did Laverne come up with that story? No. I mean, the detectives had to cover the story. I mean, sure enough. So she shows up with a shower curtain. That's what they claim. She drives into the this crowded truck stop parking lot, drives in, finds John standing over a dead body. She's the only one that sees this. Nobody else can see it, I guess. But she finds John standing over him now. She's been trying to get rid of this guy for years. Right. Why didn't she just, if that was the case, why didn't she just turn around, drive away, and call 911, and get the cops out there? Because there's a dead body at John's feet. Right. Certainly, he, he's gone now. I mean, she doesn't even have to get involved. Right. But, you know, she, she gets involved, right? She gets this shower curtain. They wrap the body in and they put it in the, in the back of the car. And she claims they drove for about 12 miles, which wouldn't put her anywhere near the Vista House Monument. Right. It'd only be, it put her by Oregon City or something like that. Because we're talking Wilsonville over to Oregon City or up towards the, the S-curves. Right. You know, that's as far as you'd get in 12 miles. You wouldn't get all the way even to Portland. So they claim they, they, they drove through an area, and they, they in, in, in the heavy rain, they stepped out and walked over, and he threw the body down in the ravine in the heavy rain. Okay. Now, they arrest John. You know, the reason why they arrest John is because the murder happened in Wilsonville, but they give put him in Washington County Jail because of jurisdiction. It matters where the murder happened, not where the murder body was found. Right. So, it, since since the story was that the murder happened in Wilsonville, therefore in Washington County, uh, Detective Al Corson of the State Police. That's why they have a detective from the State Police with with the investigation team for jurisdiction issues, and he knows jurisdiction, so he. That's why John ended up at Washington County Jail. Now, while John is at the Washington County Jail, remaining. I'll call you right back. Okay. 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 Welcome back. All right. <laughs> okay. So, so what ended up happening is John's arrested, put in Washington County Jail. He's sitting there, and while he's in there, Laverne uh, goes out with with the detectives out to the Vista House Monument and down the scenic highway. And she's able to pinpoint where the ravine is, where the body was, and at the very same time was able to recite exactly what what uh, Tanya was wearing that night. She wasn't within 25 miles of the girl, and yet she knows exactly what clothes were 
warned by the victim. She knew exactly what was going on. She knew all the evidence was there. She was just fed back. In other words, I believe what happened was Detective John Ingram picked her up, schooled her on the location where the where the ravine was, schooled her on what Tanya had been wearing at the time, right. and then brought her back to his office then called up Detective Al Cors from the state police, which is in another office, and he came in. We need to go on a drive around. So they took, then, then with, with Al in the car, they drove down, and she was able to pinpoint where the ravine was. She gets out and takes a photograph of it, and then also recites exactly what, what Tanya had been wearing that night. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Detective Al Cors hears it for the first time. He does, he's not in on the coaching. He just hears about it. He believes she's she's guilty. Now all this happens while John's sitting in Washington County. Now they have to they, they look at this. Now you imagine uh, the, the district attorney's office there in Multnomah County is now wondering how do they get control of this case back because John's now in Washington County. That means all their evidence that they have is going to have to be turned over to Washington County. Right. Laverne's statement will have to be turned over. The new detectives from Washington County will have to investigate the case, which means they'll have to ask questions of Laverne. They'll have to ask her, how did you know? What's this? How do you get all this information? And as dumb as Laverne is, she probably would have told them everything. That right. this is where the detective gave her the information. This is how the case was developed. So they didn't want that to happen. They needed this case back. Right. So what did they do? They they went out to see Laverne. They said we have we have a problem. We need you to change this story to make the murder happen in, in Multnomah County, so we have control of this, so we can we can we're the ones that can get John put away for you, my dear. We're going right. to do this for you. We're going to get him put away, but we need your help. We need you to tell this story. And so here comes, or if you don't tell this story. We're going to let John go. We're going to let John out of jail, and he's going to come home, and he's going to beat the hell out of you, and you think you had an abusive relationship before. John's going to come home, and he's going to be really mad at you now. Right. Right? So they probably said that to her, and she says, okay, uh, what do you want me to say? So the, the next story is that there's no shower curtain. There's a phone call. Go pick up John at... at and then she gets there, and there it is. John's there, and Tanya's alive, standing right next to him. They get in the car. He's making out with uh, Tanya as they're driving, and he's got, she's got instructions to go out to the Vista House Monument. So she drives, what, 30 miles, 35 miles out to the Vista House Monument from Wilsonville. And they get there. John exits the car, a warm car, by the way. It's, it's, it's January 21st. It's going to be cold, right? Right. And he exits the car, goes up onto into onto the, the doorstep of the Vista House Monument, lays Tanya down. He's having consensual sex with Tanya. And then in the middle of consensual sex, he gets up and he walks back to the car and says, he tells Laverne, you need to come and watch. And he grabs the rope from the from the trunk of the car, and Laverne and him go to this this. The, the doorstep of the best house mine, which is cold, concrete, and rock. 
and laying down on the cold concrete rock, she's hanging onto this rope tied around Bennett's neck while he's having sex with her. And and now in the tape conversation, she's crying that she's hanging on and she's tying, she's tightening the rope around her neck, and that's why she dies. And after they're dead, after she's after Tanya's dead, they pick up the body, put her in the car, and then down drive about a mile and a half down the down the hill towards the Columbia River Gorge and drop her off, drop the body into the ravine, carries the body down to the ravine, and they drive off. And John turns to her and says, if you say anything, I'll kill the whole family. Right? Okay. That's what the story is. This is that's in the L.A. Times. That's how, how John and Laverne and out. And what happens, this is a tape conversation. She tells the tape, do they arrest her at that moment? No. They don't arrest her. They they leave her at her house after she just confessed to helping to kill Tanya Bennett. They take the tape the tape confession. They take it back to the district attorney's office. They play it for Jim McIntyre and probably Michael Michael Shrunk and probably Keith Meisenheimer, the the, the second seat. They play it for him. And said, okay, this is a tape confession of Laverne saying this is what happened. We need to know whether this we can prosecute this case with this tape confession, and they believe they can. So they go back and they get John out of Washington County, they remove him, they bring him back to, to Multnomah County. Then they go out and they pick up Laverne and they bring her to, to Multnomah County and they book her in the booking. And in the LA Times story, it is said that she actually is hugging the detectives and thanking them for arresting her oh. and putting her in jail. So in other words, she was sold a bill of goods. I, I believe that they, they, they gave her a, a song and a dance. They told her that all you have to do is testify him in court, and you'll go home, and he'll go to prison. That's all that's going to happen. And, of course, she's in, she's in county jail now up until, and then in November, this is February, in November, uh, they come to her with a deal of 10 years if she testifies against John. And that's when she realized she'd been duped. Right. And then she talk, she tells she talks to her, her lawyer, which is Wendell Berkland, and she says, "Oh, I made this all up. This is all a screw up. I I, I just snowballed. I I thought I was getting rid of John, and, and now they're getting rid of me. Oh my God! What the horror of this, right? Right. And so she takes a polygraph test. They they they, they set up a polygraph test to prove that she is now telling the truth. Right. Uh, and, and she passes it, right? But it doesn't matter. They have a tape confession of her killing. So they take her to trial first, and all they do, they can they convict her with the tape recording. That's what they do. I mean, they don't they don't they present a case. They don't bring in the the, the probation officer because she's already admitted being the anonymous caller. They don't have to bring all this evidence in. All they have to say is that she confessed to the murder, and this is we believe this is to be true. And so nine of the 12 jurors wanted to put her on death row. Wow. And so what do they do with John? They go to John. They say, all right, she's got a conviction. We're going to come after you with the death penalty. If you don't, want, if you don't take a deal, we're going to kill you, you son of a bitch. Right. And so what does John do? He knows the system. He knows what's going on. He, knows his, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to admit guilt to something he didn't do. But he has to because why? He's facing the death sentence. He doesn't want to do the death sentence. So he takes a no contest plea 
to a, a murder charge, he picks up 15 to life or wow. 20 to life or something like that. So he gets a death. You know, he gets that. But, you know, the thing is with prosecutors and the police is that they can build a case on someone, a complete false case. Right. And throw it and throw it at a jury and let the jury decide whether it's a good case or not. And, after, and if the jury says it's not a good case, and throw it out and they acquit the person. Okay, oh, well, no big deal. And if they don't, they give a conviction. Well, that's a good thing, too. That's a, that's, it's all good. There's no prosecution after the, the de detectives or the prosecutors. We can't go after them for being malice. Right. Be, because it's their job. They're doing their job. See, there's, there, there are, there's a lot of misconceptions in the law when it comes to the normal layman on the street, the normal person understanding the law. Right. And what is the law and what is justice. Now, the justice, now the prosecutor's job is to, to seek justice, but also the truth. True. Right? Yeah. He's supposed to seek the truth. Now, if he, if he finds evidence to prove that that suspect he has is innocent, he's supposed to bring that evidence out and get the person out, not allow this to happen. But in this case, they had a known nut case, a known nut person calling in to say that this happened, and they decided to use her to get to him to get a conviction that they would normally not get. And they knew right. if they threw it at a judge and a jury and they, they were acquitted, then, of course, they'd call no foul and they just were doing their job. That's, what, that's how they looked right. at it. Right. So they were... They had a, a they had an all win situation. They'd win either way. They'd win that they were you know they were acquitted and they were let go and then and then they'd say well no foul we were we're do, just doing our job. Right. Now yeah. I have a question and I don't know if this sure. this part is true or not, but I had heard somewhere that he was actually in jail on a probation violation when the murder happened. Is that true? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm oh, not okay. sure if that. I have no idea whether he was or not. Okay. All I know, he was on probation and count. Now, there was a story after I, after I sent that was deemed as a happy face letter out, and in October, November of ninety uh, ninety four, a True Detective magazine ran a story called "Does Oregon Have Another Zodiac Killer?" by a, by writer Frank Hughes. That story is before I get him out of prison. Right. And they list, in that story, is listed the name of the, of the probation officer. And they, okay. they listed how, they, how the case developed. And it's very interesting if you read that, if you're able to find that, art, that article, which you should be able to find. I, there are other people out there that follow the case have had found that, that article okay. in a True Detective magazine. It came out in, in October, November of 94, and later in, in February of 95, it came out again, another printing, and, it, and the title was changed just a little bit, Does Oregon Have Another Zodiac Loose by Frank Hughes. But it's the same article, and they try to explain how this case developed. And, and then later, the L.A. Times story comes out after we, I got him out of prison. And they're okay. trying to explain how, it, how, how they got it wrong. Okay. So here you have a story where they're trying to say, well, that we got the right people, and then all of a sudden now we got it wrong, and then we're trying to explain how this going. And they all want to blame Laverne for everything. Right. She's this, she's this diabolical 
you know, person that was able to pull the wool over these seasoned detectives and prosecutors' eyes right. and get this done without, you know, raising a red flag at all. Right. And then later, now she's, she's at fault for being able to do that. So basically they're saying that she was like this, like a mastermind behind the whole thing and manipulated the system. Yes. Although the, the, the police and the prosecutors know how to manipulate the system because that's what they did. I was going to say, I, I knew get, Laverne, and I mean, nah, I don't see her, you know, being such a mastermind that she don't can see do that. it herself. Yeah. She was, no, if you were, if you were in prison, you were there with her. Yeah. You would find her to be very, you know, the granny, you know, oh, the, yeah, totally. the girl that was a grandmother and she's claiming her innocence and, and there's all a big misunderstanding and and the blame goes everywhere else but her. Well, see, actually, when I was in there with her, um, she said this that um, she had turned him in and that, uh, how did she put it? Um, that she had called and turned him in because she just knew that he had to have committed the murder, and but the police didn't believe her, so she says, "But I was there. I helped." And you so, helped, yeah. yeah. So that's well, that's what you know. The last story is that yeah. she helped, but they knew when they went to see John that John couldn't drive a car. Right. The only way, the only way that this could happen with John is that John was driven out right. to the crime scene by somebody. And and who drives John around but Laverne? Right. So Laverne's driving John everywhere, so Laverne has to be involved in the case. Right. And they knew this. This is this is they they had it all soaked up. They all knew what was going on. They were, they played it out, and they kept feeding her information. Right. And they kept and she kept feeding it back. This is at any moment. Laverne could have said, "Wait a minute, I don't, I don't like the feeling of this. I'm not gonna, I'm not talking to you anymore." And the case would have been over. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have taken her to trial. There wouldn't have been no, thing, no confession, no nothing. Right. Yeah, well, and they, and what they yeah. would have done, they would have said, "Well, yeah, she's, she's a known liar. She's been doing it for three years." Um, right. And they'd fall back on their laurels on that and say, "Yeah, we investigated this and we found out this is what happened." So they'd always hold that in the back corner. If it all fell apart, they'd all say, yeah, well, we've been investigating and find out that she has a history of doing this. Right. And then they might have charged her with tampering with evidence and probably threw her in prison for five years for doing that. Right. To, been, to justify uh, their time. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like I said, this the whole Tanya Bennett case here in Oregon especially, um, people don't realize how convoluted it was. You know, because, I mean, it was tremendously convoluted Um, because, you know, you have these two people that one of them saying, yeah, he did it. I was there. I helped him. But then it was somebody totally different that had nothing to do with any of them actually did the crime. You know what I mean? So, yeah, but look look at the evidence. Look at how the case played out. Right. She's supposed to have brought a shower curtain, a shower curtain. to explain why why there was no trace evidence in her car, and then the next story is there's no shower curtain, but there's still no trace evidence in the car. Right. So, but they also said that where does did she did she buy a new shower curtain anyway to to make her story legit? Right. Did they search 
the road for the shower curtain at all? Yeah, and I was going to say, did, where did the found, shower did curtain go all one? of a sudden? If they found one, was that, <laughs> and if they found one, would it have uh, Tanya's DNA on that shower curtain and they didn't have a shower curtain? Yeah. I mean, there's so much, the, the story kept changing, so the evidence was all there trying to explain why there was no trace evidence in the car right. or anywhere. Right. And, of course, if there's, if there's the crime scene investigators went out to the Vista House monument, you know, months later, they wouldn't have went out there, or a month later, would they have found, because she was badly beaten and, and there, there's a lot of blood involved, there would have been blood all over the, the Vista House monument. Yeah, totally. Somewhere. But they wouldn't, but there's no crime scene investigation into the crime, into the crime scene. Yeah. Right. So the crime scene investigators didn't go out there to investigate a crime scene that was where the murder supposedly happened. So they have no report of a crime scene, and they still ran with it. Right. You know, so they, the shower curtain evidence, if they found a shower curtain, but the, the last story, there is no shower curtain. So what now with the shower curtain? Where did the shower curtain come from? Yeah. If and there was no shower curtain, and, you know, so if you go backtracking, all of a sudden you're going like, well, wait a minute. The last story, there was a shower curtain to cover the evidence. Now there's no shower curtain. And yet you found a shower curtain, or they didn't find it, or they searched for a shower curtain and didn't find one. Or they found one, and then maybe she bought a new one. Why would she buy a new one if they didn't have the, if the old one was still around? Right. Yeah. And there's, so, like you said, convoluting. Yeah. This whole yeah. case was all. It was, totally. They started and they said, we're going to prosecute you. We're going to find you guilty. We're going to put you in front of a jury. Let them do it for us. Right. All we have to do is come up with enough enough evidence to push that way. Right. Now, nobody at the Best House Monument saw them. Nobody at JB's Lounge in Wilsonville saw, saw Tanya. Right. But they did see, they did see John and Laverne. Nobody at the B&I Tavern saw John uh, saw John and Laverne, but they saw Tanya there. Yeah. And, they were, and, and, and that's 25 miles away. Yeah. You know, Tanya didn't drive a car, so how did she get to the JB's lounge? Exactly. John didn't drive a car, so what did, what, what did Laverne do? Drive all the way out to the B&I Tavern, pick up uh, Tanya, drive her out to JB's lounge so, so right. John could be with her, then come back later and pick her up and you know back and forth they go right see now, the, the bni tavern was about six blocks away from my house i walked there okay and i ended up driving there later so okay. this is this is i was in the area now, I, I wish i hadn't done it but you know at the same time you know when they when they say god has a lot of influence in your lives maybe maybe i was being driven to this idea that this case would come out and, and, and help people in custody somewhere along the way. Help maybe get rid of the death penalty or some stupid thing like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at it, if you have to, you know, everything's written yeah. in the Book of Life, you have to follow this along. Maybe this was all predestined. I was, I had no choice in the matter, blah, 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 whatever. But it's, it's yeah. it happened. Now, here's the question, though. I mean, because if the newspaper is reporting, asking for information on the two men that she was seen with at B&I Tavern, who was the other man? Or was that not the case at all? Well, there's two men at the B&I Tavern that were partying with her when I walked in. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. And then 
That was that's why they were looking for two men because okay. she was last seen in the company of two men at the BNI Tavern on okay. the twenty first of January. Right? She left the, she left the tavern by herself, which the, the bartender by that time was, the bar the bar was was full of people, so she probably never noticed. Yeah. But she did remember from early on, from about noon or one o'clock in the afternoon, that that's where she was in there playing pool and drinking beer, you know, out of uh, pitchers of beer. Gotcha. So, yeah. So they, that's why they were looking for the two men. Now, that would be in the article in the newspaper. Right. And then you'd go to the search warrant. The search warrant would be for the search of her her, uh, her house and car. Right. And, of course, there's no polygraph test. Now, you could talk to her lawyer, Wendell Birkeland, who's very highly re- religious. I talked to him after I got him out, and, and he was... He was thanking Jesus for getting him out of prison. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, it was it was about he was praising God and all this, and that that I came forward, and that's how this all developed. And I right. was like, okay, really? Yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, this is he prayed for a miracle and he got one. Okay, wow. so yeah, okay. that's why that's why I brought God into effect because that was the way he was playing it out. He's like. Right. The only way they got out was, was God got involved and, and pushed the issue along, the narrative along. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. So, so their, her, their conviction was, was that, that forward. That's how that all played in. They just used a tape recorder that they tape recorded. Right. Now, what a lot of people don't realize that Detective Al Corson came to see me in, in, in 1997 before I went to Wyoming. And he was trying to get me to confess that I had lied about the whole thing, that Laverne and John were really the killers. Right. And the reason why he wanted that is because he believed that they were the killers. Why? Because he wasn't involved in the coaching. He was only brought in to listen to the story after the coaching was done. Okay. So he heard the story for the first time, and he real he thought they were actually guilty. Now, this is that's a detective for you. He was trying to... He's trying to fathom the idea. Now, he probably never thought that Detective John Ingram was pulling a fast one over him. Right. That the prosecutors were pulling a fast one over him. They were going to use his testimony in trial to say he heard it or saw it for the first time. And I bet you if you went into court transcript, you would have Detective Al Corson testifying in court. You wouldn't have Detective Al, uh, John Ingram testifying at all. Right. Because if you... If, John got into a, a debate with a, a good lawyer and was torn down, and that maybe it might have come out that he was coaching Laverne, okay. and he didn't want that to come out. So they would have brought in, if you went into the public, public records on the uh, court transcript, I bet you you'll find that only Detective Al Corson was brought in to testify that this is how it, how it went down. Okay. Because he, was doing, he, never, he never heard any of the coaching. Right. And then, of course, the district attorney's office would have to be aware that this was a setup, because they'd have to they'd have to play this in court. They'd have to play this out in court to make it look right. Yeah. But this isn't this isn't something that you know that was pulled over their eyes. It was manipulated by Laverne. You know that you know she had this great capacity to go in there and and twist things around, and people would just believe her because she's Laverne. Right. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I mean, like I said, it was just 
Some people don't understand. I mean, people who aren't from this area and didn't read the news reports or follow the case or nothing like that, they don't understand how, like, intricate everything was. You know what I mean? Well, it's all all in the details that they don't want to... They, they they want to shove under the carpet this thing. They want to move, make it go away. Well, they don't want. They did not want me to come forward and get them out of prison. They they were willing to give me three unsolved murders to call mine if I just left the Bennett case alone. Right. You know, Monroe County was wanting to. They wanted to settle three cases, allow me to have three cases that weren't mine, prove they're mine, and say they they were mine, just so that I left it. They figured that the body count was what I was after. That's not what I was after. Right. And the reason I got them out of prison because it was the right thing to do. Right. And see, and that's... It wasn't because I was, I, was I, I, I wanted, you know, to be responsible and stuff that I felt that they were, you know, taking away my glory or some stupid right. thing exactly. like that. Exactly. And, and that is the reports that were out there is that you didn't like the fact that somebody else was getting credit for your crime. But at the same time is people don't realize that underlying all of this is a level of police corruption. You know what I mean? That nobody wants to take a look at. Nobody wants to acknowledge that because heaven forbid if you can discover or prove that there was corruption on the police force at that time. Because that would take every case that those detectives ever investigated and shine a different light on them. You know. Well, the the real issue here, now John wrote me about nine years after he got out, asking me for help to find a lawyer so he could sue them. And I wrote him back. I said, you waited until the statute of limitations are over. You don't understand. Right. You can't sue now. because." And I told him the only way you could prove to get money from them in a lawsuit is you have to prove malice. You have to prove that they intentionally did this. That they intentionally did this. And in other words, under new evidence, let's say you went in and you could prove that Detective John Ingram fed the information to Laverne. And that's what would have happened in a new trial. See, when, when they got out of prison, they didn't give her a new trial. They wanted this to go away. They didn't want to have, they didn't want the culpability of, of being the ones that put them in there knowing they, they were innocent. Right. And so they didn't want it under new evidence with my testimony coming in and showing where the evidence is. They didn't want a new trial because that would allow Laverne to get on the witness stand and point to Detective John Ingram and say, well, he gave me all the information. He right. helped me put, put that stuff in my per, in my car. This right. all was his doing. He wanted me to do this to get John put away. He was going to help me get rid of John. And, of right. course, that would have proved that they were culpable in it. And then there a lawsuit. John would have walked over with multi-millions of dollars. Right. And they would have had egg on their face. Exactly. And detectives would have been fired. They would have been let go. Right. And then they would, it, tensions would have been gone. Right. And then all those cases yeah. that they had already and all, solved all would all come back up. All those cases they've yeah. done would be under scrutiny. Exactly. And they'd come under a magnifying glass and they would say, wait a minute, we got these corrupt prosecutors and police working right. this. All these cases are moot now. We have to start over. Yeah. They have to reinvestigate yeah. everything. Everything. And, yeah. yeah, that, and you know, unfortunately, I mean, that probably should have been done anyways. Um, it should have been done. Yeah, because... It should have been done. Even even the way this the way this evidence is coming out now, even if, even though it's 
all these years later. Right. It, it puts it puts a, a kind of a a bad feel on on their product productivity in the county. In other words, they, they that question would come up. Oh well, let's go back in the Bennett case. Let's 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 relook at this. Where right. just how this evidence come forward? How did, how did she know this evidence that only the police would know at that time? And that would have to be told. Her. And I will call you back in a minute. Uh, okay. All right. Bye. All right. Well, those sounded like they were great calls. Yeah. Actually, um, I had a good time talking with him today. I always have a good time All talking with him. All by myself, because you had to leave. Oh, by myself. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I was. <laughs> I told him, I said, I'm, a, I'm here alone, because Scott left me. And then he was like, hey, little girl, get in my van. I mean, no, <laughs> he wouldn't say that. You never know. Dun, dun, dun. We'd be getting his van and get in his truck. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Remember, a couple of things. Uh, check out the links below for the uh, yep. uh, for, Twist for the t-shirts. Yeah, for the t-shirts, our new apparel line. Uh, this show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. You can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.